All stories have a starting point, and this one's no different. Today, Origins, on this very first episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Get the- Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the IC Robots Podcasting Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Hey everybody in podcast land, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you live from my home in Santa Rosa, California, by gracious way of the IC Robots Podcasting Network. I want to say thank you to the man, IC Robots himself, for giving me the kick it took to dip my toe into the podcasting world, and uh, hopefully I can do him and the rest of the network proud. Uh, So I guess the first order of business here really is, uh, who am I? Who is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega? Why am I here? Why is this podcast happening? Well, the easy answer is that as good old ISR has been looking to expand his network, uh, we've known each other for, God, I guess it's been almost 20 years now. And probably that meeting will be a story for another time on one of these shows. But uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in trying my own hand at the podcasting thing. And I've actually been thinking about it independently for a while. So the stars kind of aligned and here I am. As far as who I am, there isn't a whole lot to say on the matter. On paper, I'm a pretty everyday average schmo living out here in the suburbs of Northern California. 40 years old, wife and two kids. But underneath the surface, there's something else seething there. Creativity that kind of needs to get itself out into the world. And it's really a big interest of mine. It's something I want to explore on the show here going forward. I really like the idea of people who aren't professional artists per se, but who just have a creativity that drives them, that they bring into their life whether anyone is paying attention or not. And I guess for a prime example of this, we can really take it back to IC Robots, uh, the guy who got me doing the show in the first place and a guy who's been a real creative inspiration of mine for the last however many years he's been doing the whole IC Robots thing. I mean, here's a guy that, um, I mean, he's not getting paid millions of dollars to do his thing, but just kind of quietly out of his own home uh, with his own time on his own dime, he's, he's just sitting there making the best podcast in the world. Um, these are the kind of people I want to be around. This is something that makes life worth living to me, that makes it, uh, elevates us out of the level of just kind of generic people making middling small talk to uh, people that, that have that kind of magnetism that makes you want to be around them, that makes you want to keep living, that makes you want to kind of reach for something more. And um, furthermore, another another point on this topic, and uh, it involves IC robots as well, um, I really think a key component of these sort of like artists in the shadows, these, these people that are creating to create because they need to, because they want to, not because anyone's uh, necessarily rewarding them to do so. Uh, it seems to me that one really key uh, common element here is this idea that people who are like this tend to have a very strong aesthetic worldview. They have very specific interests that kind of um, color how they see the world and that in turn kind of elevates everyday mundane experiences into something a little bit more. In the case of IC Robots, the man loves movies, okay? If you ever listen to the Toys R Us report, he also loves toys. He also loves uh, the whole world of secondhand, the Goodwill dig. Now, I mean, I, I like all these things to a degree. I'm not as into them as he is, but that doesn't matter. His passion for that colors everything he comes into contact with, and it's what causes him to have these great stories to tell us on the Toys R Us report. So it's not that you necessarily have to um, find the interest that someone else has. They don't have to be identical to yours, but just having these like kind of laser passions that uh, opens us up to uh, 
having a receptacle for our creativity. I think that's really important. So these are the kind of things that I, I kind of want to delve into with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Um, and I guess the easiest way, I mean, over time, if I keep doing the show, I'm going to have different different topics, different focus points, uh, different stories, uh, either from my past or from my current day to day that kind of uh, touches into my own uh, take on this world of creativity for creativity's sake. Um but for right now, uh, I, I think since we're on episode one, uh, Origins is really w- where we need to begin. And like I said um, on the intro, my name is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. I was not born Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. I became Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. And I think that's where we're going to start here today on this first episode. Going to take a quick little break. We're going to be right back with some origin stories. <laughs> see people the way nobody else sees them, when they're born, when they're dying, when they're drunk, when they're killing one another. The streets of San Francisco, the city and its people, seen through the eyes of two detectives, starring Carl Molden and Michael Douglas. What about the Barry case? Two suspects. The boy Wonder here, he likes the lawyer. I'm still trying to track down a guy calling himself her uncle. Can't you two get together? Well, then we wouldn't need each other. Turn to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Podcasting Network. I was born in the city of San Francisco in the year 1976. I lived with my two parents, my mother and my father, in an apartment building in the Petrero Hill area of the city. It was a green building. Uh, it stands out in my memory because I remember hearing my parents talking about my, uh, the doctor that delivered me. Her name was, uh, I think Kathy Alvarado, Dr. Alvarado, which I transposed with avocado and we lived in a greenhouse. So it all strangely seemed to make sense to me in my pre one year old mind. Um, San Francisco was a, it was a strange place when I was a child, uh, early on, um, I remember seeing uh, the television show The Streets of San Francisco starring Carl Malden and uh, Michael Douglas and uh, for some reason really being drawn to the Carl Malden character and I would run around, um, this was a couple years after I was born when I was walking and everything, run around wearing a, a black Disney's Black Hole, the movie, uh, bathrobe that I had. I, th- I thought that was like Carl Malden's trench coat and I'd run around the house solving crimes but it's funny because in my memory, looking back, you know, obviously uh, living in the 70s in San Francisco wasn't like I was uh, living in the past. It was the present. But uh, I just remember being a kid, 1970s San Francisco, having kind of this filter lens on it that made it look like a 70s TV show. Everything looked gritty and grainy. I'd stand on the hill where our apartment building was and I'd look out and I'd see the, the 76, the big orange 76 tower and just uh, the kind of sandstone looking buildings in the distance and everything just kind of sandy and gritty and dirty. And that was a city that I, I spent my first five years in. Um, it was a strangely magical place in a lot of ways. Uh, being in an urban environment, I was out and about quite a bit. And so my parents would take me out to get coffee or to go grocery shopping and, uh, you know, there'd be, uh, street people out and everyone wanted to do the old trick with me, the pulling the quarter out from behind the ear, 
And uh, I used to think that that was a tribe of traveling people that had this special power of producing coins from children's ears. I remember uh, ventriloquists on street corners um, with their dummies and, and thinking these wooden uh, talking dolls. That was just a matter of course. They were real. There were certain certain type of species that lived out there in that 1970s gritty, grainy city. Uh, I remember a man who built himself as the human jukebox in Golden Gate Park. And uh, he was literally set up in a cardboard box. And uh, every so often, the curtains on the cardboard box would open up, and he was this crazy man with wild, long hair, and he'd be blaring a trumpet. Um, it, it, it was a strange place to grow up in, and uh, I, I found it terrifying a lot of the time, quite frankly. Uh, one of my parents' favorite hangout spots was in uh, the North Beach section of San Francisco, and they were always making me go out to coffee with them at this place called the Cafe Trieste. And the Cafe Trieste, at the time, North Beach uh, was mostly uh, – there were a lot of really um, – uh, gnarly strip clubs there. It wasn't just kind of like some discreet strip club. It was strip clubs with full-on signs out in front, you know, 25 cents to talk for five minutes to a nude girl. And uh, as a kid, um, you know, pretty early on, I'd already seen kind of some scenes from uh, comic books and such. And I always associated North Beach with Crime Alley from the Batman comic books. And I figured at any moment we were going to be set upon by thugs. My parents were going to get killed. So why in God's name were they taking me here? So this growing up in this environment, um, I kind of started off with sort of so a lot of like uh, fear and anxiety about, about the adult world. It seemed like a very strange place to me. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. I remember in addition to all the strange sights and sounds I would see, the human sights and sounds out on the street with my parents, uh, in addition to that, uh, television really weirded me out when I was a kid because I never was really sitting there for an extended period of time, understanding what I was watching. I would just see these weird images here and there, these brief snippets. Uh, I'd wake up uh, late on a Saturday night uh, to get a drink of water. And my parents would be watching this television show and there'd be a, a clay figure, a clay man with a red shirt and blue pants falling from a tall building and smashing uh, to the ground below while uh, my parents and maybe some friends of uh, theirs that were over would be laughing. Uh, I remember uh, watching a children's television show in the morning where someone would scream, hey, you guys, and there'd be a, 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 a person dressed in a Spider-Man suit. I, from, from what I understood, it was Spider-Man. There was all these strange images going on, and uh, uh, that compared with the strange sights and sounds I saw with my own eyes uh, just led to me to believe that uh, I was living in this very bizarre place that um, – on the surface didn't make a lot of sense, but there was this underlying current that was tying everything together. And if I could just figure out what that was, I could really get a handle on this and, and finally feel at ease and finally know what was going on. Uh, another thing that used to really freak me out growing up in San Francisco were the, the statues in public places. I felt like there were these sentinels kind of uh, following me, staring at me and uh, from uh, put there by an unseen hand. And again, this unseen hand, uh, if I could just piece these, uh, fit these puzzle pieces together, I could figure out what it all meant. So I guess basically, when I was you know four years old, I was I was essentially uh, what a fifty year old conspiracy theorist is today. But anyway, yeah. So that that was my background, uh, my my early formative years growing up. And I remember um, uh, when things finally started to make sense to me. Not not necessarily to make sense, but where I finally found um, a uh, way of kind of centering myself and kind of um, making sense of all these strange images, uh, 
and sights and sounds that I, w- I would hear and see uh, was the first time I got gifted an action figure. I remember the very first action figure I ever got. Uh, my parents must have given it to me. I don't, I don't remember specifically, but um, actually, you know, I do remember now. I remember being with my parents at this very strange cavernous kind of warehouse, which I'm sure was a, was a department store of some type. And uh, they were buying some stuff, and I was probably getting antsy. And I remember um, they presented me with an Obi-Wan Kenobi action figure, the original Kenner Obi-Wan. And I thought, God, this figure here, this amazing kind of wizardly, I don't even know what this thing is because, you know, I didn't really have the point of reference of the Star Wars movies at the time. This is a shard of what I'm looking for. This makes sense. I can tell stories with this guy. He he speaks to me. And so – I think that that happened shortly before maybe like my fourth birthday because it was the first birthday when I was really cognizant of the fact that I was receiving gifts and I got a lot more Star Wars toys uh, that birthday. And so suddenly I had not just Obi-Wan but I had – you know, I think I had like the Bespin Han Solo. Uh, I think I had the the Hoth Luke Skywalker – uh, it's really weird because other than Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, I never had the legit, like, you know, the the top-tier main of any of the main uh, old Star Wars characters. I always had them in, like, you know, I had, like, uh, Han Solo in his Hoth gear. I had the Besman Han Solo. I did never had the, the OG, you know, swashbuckler Han Solo from the first film. But anyway, I, I started to assemble these toys, these kind of – and they, they were almost like avatars or, or some objects of power that, like, gave me a sense of belonging and a sense of uh, being able to, like, tell my story through these characters. And uh, part of that too was that I knew that they came from larger narratives. I knew they came from movies I hadn't seen. And if I could just uh, get in there closer, I could figure out what they were really all about and put it all together. And so it was the years that I spent living in San Francisco ticked down uh, because we moved uh, around the time that I was five years old. I kept uh, acquiring Star Wars action figures and um, at a certain point, I, I started to see the films, and I, don't, I, don't, I should have this up here um, while I'm doing this, but I don't have uh, any notes with me for the dates, so I can't remember. I, I know the original film was already out by the time uh, I was around. I can't remember exactly what year Empire came out and when I saw it for the first time. But um, So some of these memories, I apologize if the, the timeline's jumbled a bit, but I did eventually see the films and uh, started to see some of the other cartoons and movies, little snippets here and there of other things that uh, other uh, franchises that had uh, caught my imagination. Um, but even still back then, you know, in those, those pre-internet dark ages, there was a pretty thick layer of mystique uh, over the world of popular culture. And even though you could go watch a movie or you could read a comic book, you couldn't really delve deep into the meta-ness of it that you can now. You couldn't know every single possible detail about not only the film, but what went on behind the scenes, what everyone had for breakfast, what their contract was, what the writers were. Um, it, it was just a very different world. So it's still this um, this uh, feeling that I was living in this nebulous fantasy land, this uh, kind of treacherous adult world where these these uh, shards of fantasy light would come down uh, and that were there for me to piece together uh, should I be able to do so. Uh, that was still strong back then, even, even as I grew older, even as I started to understand things more, even as I started to take in the bigger narratives that the toys I loved so much came from. But um, getting back to those first five years, Star Wars was pretty much the main focus at that time. Um, And then uh, around the time I was five, around the time I was starting kindergarten, 
we moved um, about four hours south of San Francisco to a very small town called Atascadero, California. Uh, my dad had gotten a job down there, and so we had to move, and it was a huge culture shock because my parents were basically, you know, there used to be in kind of San Francisco. Uh, Nowadays we call them hipsters. I don't know what they would have been called back then, but you know they were they were like cool urban dwellers. You know they were into their fancy foods and fancy coffees and everything. And uh, I mean nowadays you can get get that stuff wherever you live, but back then it was a big big difference. Like we went from from uh, living the high gourmet life to uh, eating at McDonald's every night. And God knows there's nothing wrong with McDonald's. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying for for my parents and for an extent by extension for me, it was a culture shock moving to this tiny little burg of Atascadero. It's near uh, San Luis Obispo. If anyone um, is familiar with that uh, that town, it's uh, where the Cal Poly College is. And so um, we moved into an apartment there, and I remember um, it was there were the, kind of these duplex buildings. And our backyard um, literally um, just opened up into kind of this like dirt wasteland. And across the wasteland, um, there was a McDonald's. And it was one of those McDonald's with like the Playland um, uh, playground. So I, I thought we this move was amazing. Like this was just – talk about looking for uh, – uh, pieces of the puzzle to make sense. Here I was looking out my window and seeing life-size uh, McDonald's characters beckoning to me. Um, and it's kind of funny because like I mentioned earlier, um, I was terrified of statues when we lived in San Francisco. Uh, like they had, I think like a Beethoven statue in Golden Gate Park that one time my mom and I were walking together and I saw it and I turned around and ran and like she didn't notice I was gone until I was like, you know, a block away. But um but yet here I, I felt comforted by these these uh, um, McDonald's uh, statues, um, and I think the difference is you know uh, where the the important adult world statues that I was seeing in San Francisco were kind of these austere, uh, realistic, um, angry looking men glowering down. The McDonald's figures were were again part of this fantasy world that I, that just elevated me out of the boring humdrum the scary humdrum of adults who are always yelling at each other and stressed out and no mcdonald's bright colors happy faces clowns uh, sure as an adult mouse you know you can look back at some of those mcdonald's characters and they are a little bit uh, creepy a little grotesque perhaps but it, through a child's eyes you know this is where i wanted to be and uh, I have another memory of when we moved to Tascadero, um, when we were moving into the place, the landlady was there, she was probably giving us the keys or something. And, um, you know, she had the old pinching my cheeks, a cute little kid. And she gave me this tiny little, um, like, alien rubber figure. And again, it was like, oh, see? Yet another another clue. There's something else out there. There's not just this boring, creepy, scary adult world there's something more. And so I kept looking for it. And the months passed and I settled into my life in Atascadero. I started the elementary school there, Lewis Avenue, home of the Leopards, if I remember correctly. And life was pretty good. Um, like I said, Atascadero was a very small town and it feels like the kids there were um, kind of shrouded in a certain level of unsophistication that kept them kind of friendly and naive. I, I feel like we didn't have the same kind of pressures there that you might have in other locales to sort of um, become above it all before your time to kind of take on the, the more uglier aspects of adolescence and teenage years um, bef uh, before one was ready to. We, we were really allowed to be kids in Atascadero. We all just kind of hung out and played in the uh, sandbox with our toys and everyone was friends. I don't remember any real disputes or beefs among kids there. Um, 
around this time, I had mentioned earlier that Star Wars was kind of my focus for my fantasy life and my action figures um, for my first five years. Uh, things took a distinct turn in Atascadero when for one of my first birthdays uh, there, probably when I was turning six maybe, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe hit the scene. And I still vividly remember the first time I saw He-Man toys. Uh, my parents and I, it was on a Saturday afternoon, we were in nearby San Luis Obispo, California, where you pretty much had to go for any extensive shopping. And there was a toy store there called Uncle Tom's Toys. I was perusing the shelves, and there on the shelves, looking back at me with their grim visages, just etched granite faces staring at me, were the OG He-Man action figures. There was He-Man himself, Skeletor, Beast-Man, Merman, and I was just blown away. I'd never seen anything like this before. I could hear them talking to me. I could feel them beckoning to me. My parents caught wind of how into these He-Man toys I was. And so for that birthday, pretty much all of my relatives got me He-Man stuff. I got a Castle Grayskull. I got most of the original set of figures. And they really went on to shape my inner life, my fantasy life from there on out for the next couple of years. And if I think about it, I guess the reason that um, those He-Man toys resonated with me so strongly was because, as I mentioned before, I really found the adult world, the real world, the serious world, to be a very bizarre and frightening place. And um, the the battles between good and evil, um, and even some, some grayer areas in between with those He-Man toys, to me, kind of more clearly depicted, um, it, it was a more realistic version um, or interpretation of what I saw the adult world to be. So those toys kind of helped me put things into perspective. I, I, it made more sense to me um, through these avatars. And the years in Atascadero continued to pass. And first of all, I was in first grade, and then I was in second grade, and then I was in third grade. But in third grade, something happened. In third grade, um, my dad got a new job, and we ended up moving um, back up further up north, um, this time north of San Francisco, an hour north of San Francisco, to the town of Santa Rosa, California. And Santa Rosa, compared to Atascadero, was a huge city. I remember um, I was blown away when I heard that we were moving to a place that not only had its own shopping mall, but it actually had two shopping malls. So part of me was really looking forward to the move because, uh, like, you know, as I was talking about before, there was that culture shock when we moved from San Francisco to Atascadero. And even though we settled into life in Atascadero, there was always kind of that uh, – we had this familial um, thinking back to the good old days when we lived in a big city. And so I always kind of idealized the the thought of a bigger city. And while Santa Rosa was by no means any San Francisco, I kind of thought, great, we're finally getting closer back to, to where we came from, to where we belong. So um, we made the move, but um, we made the move when I had about one month left of my third grade year. So I showed up in Santa Rosa starting at an elementary school, Yalupa Elementary School, um, last month of the school year in a second, third grade uh, combo class. And where in Atascadero, I'd been, you know, part of the crew that had been together since kindergarten and all the teachers knew me and I was considered, uh, you know, a leader in the classroom and everything. Um, I went from that environment to an environment where the teacher was none too stoked to be taking on a new student um, so late in the year, um, where there were a lot more kids in the class, a lot more kids at the school. And like I said, um, in Atascadero, we were a bit naive um, as children there. And in Santa Rosa, the scene was decidedly different. And so I kind of dumbly walked out onto the playground the first few days there thinking I was going to make fast friends with the other kids like I had in Atascadero. 
And um, I was immediately greeted by people who were not feeling that at all. Within my first few days of attending Ilupa Elementary School, it was brought to my attention that my rat tail hairdo sucked, uh, that I had a gap between my two front teeth that I hadn't been aware was a problem, but apparently was a very major problem in Santa Rosa. I was informed that it was unacceptable that my mom was of an ethnic Chinese background. And basically, this was my entree into realizing that it was time for me to more or less retreat from, uh, I guess, the mainstream world, you'd say, the social world. And I moved very inwardly after this. I never felt like I fit in at Ilupa. And then once I was done there, that school only went till third grade. So I went to Bennett Valley School the next year. And again, that school was fourth through sixth. I went there for fourth and fifth. And I just sort of continued my downward spiral of being unable to ever really get a toehold and fit in with the dominant paradigm there. I moved to another elementary school, uh, Matanzas Elementary, in another part of Santa Rosa in sixth grade. Um, and again, I was coming in at the tail end with a class who'd been together, well, at least a lot of them, since day one. So I, I just kind of stayed in this twilight zone space of being adrift by myself in an unfamiliar alien world, which isn't too different than how I'd always felt about the world dating back to my earliest years, I, except for kind of the small period of time fitting in in a Tascadero. Uh, but meanwhile, as I drew inward, I still, especially that one month in third grade and the beginning of fourth grade, I still had my toys by my side. Uh, it, was, it was no longer the kind of communal thing that the toys had been in a Tascadero, but it became more of a personal inward deal where I'd play with my toys and they had their simulated fantasy world going on, which was kind of a mirror of my own, but it was a world where I had some semblance of control over it. And I could make the narrative make sense to me. So after that brutal um, last month of third grade transition period into Santa Rosa was over and I'd gone through the summer and I'd moved over to fourth grade at Benham Valley School, um, uh, my toys, my toy interest at, at that point, you know, Transformers had come along, G.I. Joe's had come along. I, I had all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but it was in fourth grade, I think it was in the year 1986, that um, there was a huge shift for me. And what that shift was, as, as far as a, a shift in my uh, uh, world of imagination, my, my inner world, um, what that shift was, was in my fourth grade class, we would fill out um, scholastic book order forms. Um, you know, you'd order books and the, the classroom gets a cut of the money. It's a, kind of a fundraiser thing. Uh, so we'd order scholastic books. And uh, I remember Garfield books were really popular, um, kind of picture books uh, with a few words about popular topics of the day. Um, but... In one of those orders in fourth grade, I um, ordered a book and it was all about um, – it was a WWF book about Hulk Hogan's uh, road to the WWF championship. And it was kind of a kid's uh, – Reader's Digest kid's version of uh, how Hogan uh, won the WWF uh, world title for the first time and kind of um, uh, rogues gallery of the foes that he had to go through to get to that title. And I definitely – I'd seen wrestling at this point. It was it, – I'd been on a few times, maybe some Saturday night main events in our house, and I'd always been taken with it, but I'd never really sat down and taken the time to just delve deep into it. Um, and when this book arrived, when our book orders came back, um, this book just blew me away. Uh, and it wasn't, it's funny because I didn't identify with Hulk Hogan at all. In fact, Hulk Hogan kind of reminded me of the, the people I didn't get along with at school. It kind of seemed like a Bulgarian bully, you know. What I found interesting were the heels that he went up against. I mean, um, hey, there was Mr. Fuji, a fellow Asian. Um, 
There was the Iron Sheik. I mean, it mentioned that this man was an Olympic level wrestler. Um, I found these heels just to be fascinating, um, much more so than uh, the story of Hogan himself. Um, and I, from this, I just delved fully into the world of WWF um, and started watching it whenever I could. Uh, my parents certainly weren't going to order any of the pay-per-views that were going on at the time, but back then there'd be a, a cable channel that was basically like an infomercial channel for upcoming pay-per-views, and I would watch the the ads for the upcoming uh, WWF events over and over again. In particular, the ones that were always the best were the uh, old Survivor Series infomercials because it'd be like all the guys on all the teams uh, bellowing about the, the upcoming matches. And I just... WWF became this sweet spot of every toy I'd ever been interested in, every comic book I'd ever read, just made real. And so um, from that point on, wrestling kind of superseded everything else in my fantasy life. It just became the gold standard through which I saw everything. Um, and, and again, humorously, for me, it was like the, the, the heels or the bad guys, as it were, in wrestling – kind of more represented where I was coming from. I, I always found their point of view to be much more um, relatable and uh, um, I can empathize with it a lot more than the baby faces. Um, but just like with my toys, it, it provided a um, alternate take on reality, but in a stylized way and in a way that I was able to make sense of uh, an otherwise senseless world that I lived in. And so once wrestling really became my thing, all my other toys uh, were converted into uh, being wrestling related for me. Um, I would uh, I had a um, plastic uh, case that went over the top of my – it wasn't an Atari 2600. It was the Sears version, whatever they called that. There's a plastic case that went over uh, kind of a lid. I would take that and flip it onto uh, – you know, flip it upside down. It would create a wrestling ring. And then – he-Man figures would go at it against each other. They were a weight class. G.I. Joes were another weight class. Um, they, they would wrestle each other. And uh, it kind of became this uh, universe that was all centered around professional wrestling. And it was this, this all-encompassing battle of good versus evil. And I would often, you know, it would basically mirror out what I was experiencing in my day-to-day -day life, but in a much more interesting and narrative-heavy way. And... Um, you know, this method of play lived large for me for most of that fourth grade year until one night something strange happened. I was just about to have a match and it was going to be between um, a Martian Manhunter action figure that I had um, and I think maybe one of the Marvel Secret Wars heroes. They were just about to uh, meet in the squared circle, probably um, in an atavistic way, acting out some... Uh, uh, grievance I'd, I'd had on the playground that day when um, our uh, home phone rang my mom uh, picked up the phone and it turned out my mom's dad my grandfather uh, had died uh, my grandma found him um, in the backyard of their house in San Francisco um, he'd been angrily doing battle with plants in the backyard and had dropped dead of a massive heart attack and at that point I felt the toys slipping away from me and the, the magic that used to be there where I where, was where what I was acting out with these plastic figures in front of me was able to become real and I could see it. I, I felt that ability slipping away from me. Um, and over the upcoming uh, 
weeks and months, uh, I really lost it. I wasn't really able to play with toys anymore. It just kind of all came, what had been in vivid living color just became black and white. And I was, I was fully sucked into the real world. Um, and I don't know if it was specifically because of my grandfather's death, but that was always in my memory. That was kind of the tipping point where I just completely lost my, my innocence, my ability, that, that childhood magic to just make imagination real. Um, and just fully was indoctrinated into the humdrum, mundane world of adult scientific reality, whatever you want to call it. And so the years went by and I became a teenager and then I became a young adult and all kinds of uh, misadventures and mishaps went, uh, went on along the way, which we'll get into in future episodes of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. But for the point of this origin story... Um, I want to uh, jump ahead to um, when I would have been, I guess, my early 20s, um, finding myself at a a very uninspired time of life when uh, the, the, I guess, the the phoenix that was, that is the Mr. Sensational Mantle, which was born out of all these childhood experiences, just kind of came upon me in my young adulthood. And uh, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we are going to focus on how precisely Mr. Sensational Gino Vega came to be. So we'll be right back after this. Captain Lou, where are you? Captain Lou, quit goofing off and get your face back here. Captain, is that you? Huh? Turn to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Podcasting Network. Welcome back to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, and it's just about time to turn this mother out, go home, end it all, uh, put you out of your listening misery, um, but we just have the the grand finale of our story here today um, to finish up here, and I just want to say, uh, how about Cindy Lauper, man? You know, of, of all the um, amazing pop culture icons that I was lucky enough to live through in the 1980s. I feel like Cindy um, kind of faded sooner than she should have. I feel like she doesn't get a, a, the the due that she deserves. Um, going back to my uh, original interest in 80s WWF, which led me to my interest in professional wrestling in general, you cannot understate what a big part of that whole 80s rock and wrestling thing Cindy Lauper was. I mean, my favorite wrestler of all time, Rowdy Roddy Piper, his WWF run was really defined and made by his feud uh, against Cindy Lauper, against rock and roll. Um, uh, great stuff, man. So, yeah, it, it is funny um, how for a six year old, seven year old, eight year old, uh, however old I was during Cindy Lauper's uh, golden days, 
just how much I could relate to songs about girls just want to have fun and Goonies are good enough. They were, they really kind of spoke to my life back then. And, and still to this day, yes, Cindy Lauper, big, big part of my life. Uh, now that I think about it and look back, but, uh, we're going to flash forward out of the eighties and into the nineties, I think around 1997, 98, when I was in my early twenties. Um, and, at that time, I was still living in Santa Rosa after a couple of years, just kind of bumping around mindlessly out of high school, just uh, living at my parents' house, not really doing much, staying up all night watching Beavis and Butthead and Liquid Television. Um, I'd ended up um, kind of getting really serious about going to the local junior college. And uh, I put about two years in there and I was actually getting straight A's and everything. And I got accepted to go to UC Berkeley in Berkeley, California. But by that point, I was living with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Ms. Sensational. And at the same time that I'd gotten accepted to Berkeley, she had gotten accepted to get her master's degree uh, down San Jose, uh, San Jose State University, about two hours south of Santa Rosa, and um, it wasn't really a conscious choice at the time, but I kind of, I, I think in the back of my mind, I realized had I uh, gone forward and gone to Berkeley, we probably would have gone our separate ways and I wasn't really ready to do that. So I kind of sabotaged my whole Berkeley thing. I was supposed to finish a math class in order to transfer and I kind of blew off the class and never did finish it. And uh, I ended up moving down to San Jose with Ms. Sensational and the end of the story is a happy one. But it was pretty rough at the time because even though I did move with her, you know, and I wanted our relationship to continue, it kind of meant at the time me throwing away what I was doing. And I found myself living in San Jose, not knowing anyone, not really doing anything, just kind of being cast adrift and uh, went through a lot of depression at that time. And um, so I was down there and I, I decided I was going to try to go back to school uh, in some capacity. But since I, uh, my whole Berkeley thing had fallen through, my heart wasn't really in it. But I still had um, – I was going to go to San Jose State myself, but to go to a, uh, a CSU school, I had to um, both finish the math class I'd blown off, but I also had to take a speech class. And uh, I had uh, tried taking these classes a couple times at the junior college back in Santa Rosa before we moved, but I'd always drop uh, the classes before they finished. So once we moved to San Jose, um, I was going to San Jose City College. I think that's what it was called, and I was trying to finish those classes. Still, heart wasn't really in it. And around that same time, um, you know – I my love uh, for professional wrestling never really went away, but um, when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, I kind of got distracted with other things, and wrestling wasn't that big of a part of my life anymore. But when uh, Ms. Sensation and I had moved into the first house we ever lived in together, uh, one of the other roommates had also been a youth pro wrestling fan, and so he and I kind of got back into watching it, watching some of the pay per views. But I, at the time, I got really taken with uh, WCW, World Championship Wrestling, which was kind of the competitor to WWF back then. And I liked WCW a lot more than WWF because where WWF, uh, the way that company works, they never really want to acknowledge anything that's happening um, in the greater wrestling world outside of their company. WCW is kind of more plugged into the international wrestling scene, like Japanese wrestling, Mexican wrestling. And, and that's really what I always liked about wrestling was the fact that it was this kind of part of this larger each wrestling company was part of a larger world of other wrestlers. And I, I, I liked, I liked that whole thing. And I liked with WCW, you never knew who was going to show up on any given Monday night. So I'd gotten into watching uh, Monday nitro, their show that was popular at the time. 
And so I'd been watching it, you know, when I was going to the JC and doing well, and I was still watching it when we moved down to San Jose and I wasn't really doing much. And at that same time, the internet was kind of starting to burgeon. And I came across the fact that there was a thing called um, e-wrestling federations. And basically what it was, was someone would set up a website uh, with a message board capability and you would create your own fictional wrestler and uh, the website would be a fictional wrestling federation and you would... Uh, as they call it in wrestling, cut promos, which are the interviews that wrestlers do to hype up matches. You, you'd write out your wrestler cutting his promo, and then other wrestlers would cut their promos, and you'd engage in a feud with someone, and then the person running the federation would uh, put up put, put a bunch of matches together and then write up the results of what happened in each match. So it was kind of this fantasy, fictional uh, online wrestling thing. So I decided I'd start my own, and I can't even, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was called. It was put together on an Angel Fire uh, website. I think that was like a Yahoo deal at the time, or was that GeoCities? I don't know. One of those early uh, uh, Dark Ages, uh, Internet Days, uh, make your own website deals. So I had my Angel Fire Wrestling Federation, and uh, I don't even remember how, but somehow I I got a few of my friends to join, but I also got some some random strangers uh, got in on the mix. And so I ran the thing. I would write, uh, you know, what would happen at all the big events um, based on how good each person's promo was. I'd decide who was going to win or what fit best with the ongoing storyline. But I also had my own wrestler. And that wrestler that I made was Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. And he was kind of uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, uh, Nature Boy Ric Flair, Greg the Hammer Valentine, sequin robe wearing, bleach blonde hair mashup guy. And, uh... So between writing his promos and writing uh, the match results for all our big shows, uh, it took quite a bit of my time. And I would do it during class at San Jose City College. So needless to say, I didn't perform well in my classes there. And I remember one day sitting in the library uh, at that city college between classes, uh, writing up um, with a pencil on binder paper uh, what I was going to type up as the match results later that night and maybe writing some uh, Gino Vega promos, uh, I was just like, what am I doing? What I, I'm, you know, 22, 23, whatever, however many years old, and I'm doing nothing with my life. I'm just, I'm writing these fictional uh, wrestling matches. I'm writing promos for this Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, and I kind of really got down on myself about it. And eventually my, my depression got pretty big, and uh, things weren't going great between uh, Ms. Sensational and myself. And I ended up moving back to Santa Rosa. I moved into kind of a party house with two other bachelors and uh, went through some dark times. But then things kind of put themselves back together. And I moved back in with Ms. Sensational down in San Jose. And we ended up getting married. And years went by and we had two kids. And I kind of settled into my role as a family man, house husband, all that Um because that's always kind of been my gimmick uh, post kids and our family. Ms. Sensational is the career minded one. And I'm at home being the primary caretaker of, of the children. But, um, you know, I, I still had that uh, that creative itch inside me. And so although I was distracted with kids for for the first few, you know, they're both of their early years. Um, by the time we had our second daughter, um, I was kind of feeling the urge to 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 get back out there creatively and I did a couple things. I, I, I played music, uh, punk rock music over the course of my life. And I kind of went back to doing that. But, um, you know, that kind of ran its course. And then um, I sort of started, you know, with the advent of social media and Facebook and all that, 
I kind of focused my creativity um, into online avenues, uh, writing blog posts, uh, talking about different things that interested me, kind of going back to what I was talking about at the beginning of this whole show, um, just sort of taking my interests and uh, channeling them into um, taking mundane stories of the day-to-day and kind of trying to elevate them. But in doing this, I felt like um, I couldn't just do it as myself. I couldn't do it under my uh, birth name as Scott Morris. It, it needed to be coming from from a different part of me, um, a different persona. And that's when it suddenly dawned on me. It's, you know, I, I, I wasn't uh, doing nothing with my life during those uh, e-wrestling federation days in the late 90s. Um, I, I was expressing myself creatively in my own weird way. and It wasn't a way that anyone was going to pay me for. It wasn't a way that was going to bring me fame and fortune, but it was a way that was real. It was a way that I, I was putting out there how I felt about things, how I've always felt about things, uh, expressing um, the uh, the creativity that I've always had through the lens that formed when I was young uh, and through what it is now as an adult. And I realized that what better persona to uh, pursue my creative endeavors through than Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, hence the birth of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, who I am a lot of the times uh, nowadays. And with that birth of Mr. Sensational, with uh, making him real and putting him out there into the world, um, I feel like I kind of came full circle. That um, young child who was afraid of the adult world, who found refuge in fantasy, was now an adult who had gone through various trials and tribulations and came out the other side and uh, took the parts of those experiences that worked for me and turned it into something that allows me to live my life and do my thing and have a way of expressing it creatively, having a way of living a life that isn't just totally mundane and boring and adult, that, that still taps back into that youthful passion, the, the passion that was uh, in living color before that uh, night when my grandfather died. Um, and that, you know, once you get out of that childhood innocence, it can never quite be as, as uh vivid and strong, I don't think, but it, it just, it's, it's a way of stoking the fires and keeping it alive. And that, that's what I'm trying to do here. That's what I'm trying to do with this show. Um, I know this episode was a little bit weird. I kind of went on with a lot of backstory, but I felt that that was a good place to start. Um, moving forward, hopefully things will be a little more focused, a little more interesting, but I, I just want to close out with saying um, sometime back around 2009, when I'd, I'd come out of the haze of the early days of having small children and I'd started trying to get back on the horse of creativity. I came across a term, I, I'd probably heard it before this, um, but I, I remember the first time I came across it and really understood what it meant. Uh, the Japanese term otaku. And otaku is a term in Japanese that more or less means someone who is unsuccessful uh, socially, unsuccessful in the serious adult world. And so because of that, they sort of retreat and find refuge in their interests. And I think that that uh, describes me and it describes the kind of people that I'm interested in perfectly. And a lot of times otaku is um, associated with people that are into anime or I I think even like wrestling, like Japanese wrestling. But I've read more up on it and otaku can really be anything. I mean, you can be a model train otaku. You can be a ham radio otaku. It's whatever your obsessive interest happens to be, that you use as a uh, refuge, as an escape from the kind of deathly cloyingness of 
just boring real life. Um, that's that's what makes you otaku. And I think this term, um, whether uh, people even even know the term or not, but this type of person, uh, it's usually uh, thought of kind of derisively, like you're living in a fantasy world. Come on, this isn't real. You're you're ignoring real important things, and that's not good. But from where I stand, I think it's the best possible thing. Fantasy trumps reality. The fantasy world is the real world. And it's up to us to find our way to get to it, to get to our our uh, primal selves, our child selves. Not childish, like in a babyish way, but that part of us that was unspoiled, that was real, that could, could uh, sense what was really real and not what we were conditioned through being beaten down uh, through adolescence and teenage years into our adulthood to think is real. And so for me, um, otaku, that's it. That's the aim. That's the pinnacle. Um, that's who I speak to. That's who I listen to. That's what this show is going to focus on more or less. Um, and uh, in the episodes to come, I'm going to tell more stories from my life through my weird lens of professional wrestling and uh anime and toys and what have you. And uh, hopefully I can express myself in a way that uh, is of some interest to someone somewhere, just like I am always out there uh, trying to hear from people um, who are doing the same thing on their end. So thanks for listening. Thanks to IC Robots for getting me out here into the podcasting world. I hope it wasn't too brutal of a listen. I'm not sure how regularly this show is going to drop or when we will be back, but we will be back. Uh, My next episode, if all goes according to plan, is going to be a look at my tortured relationship with and failures in the world of skateboarding. So until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. This is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off on the IC Robots Podcasting Network. This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Podcasting Network.